Let me pray as we turn to God's word this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we are studying the prophet Zechariah this summer, and for those of you who have been here the last couple weeks, and maybe you're now beginning to understand why we chose a roller coaster as the image uh, for this teaching series, maybe that's starting to make sense to you. It is indeed a wild ride to read through the book of Zechariah, and it can be a little bit disorienting. Um, It made me think about uh, sometime in the last couple years, I took the boys to Great America um, I must have, I, I realized that I must have hit the age threshold where roller coasters were more damaging than they were fun. Because um, I took the first ride of the morning on a roller coaster with the boys and then I had to sit down in the shade for two hours until my stomach ache and my headache subsided. I don't know if you've had that emotion or not. Um, and maybe we, we noticed last week as we were starting particularly into the visions, the eight visions of Zechariah, we could tell that it was a lot. For the congregation. So if you felt like it was a lot, we understand. It was a lot. Maybe you feel like you needed a break after some furious loop-de-loops. Uh, it's a bit disorienting, and it's okay if you feel that way as you read it. It is a different kind of biblical genre for most of us, and it's going to take a couple weeks to sort of attune ourselves to this, this wild ride of, of Zechariah. But on that day in Gurney, by noon, I was back on the rise kind of eased my way back in. I ended up enjoying the day without any additional Tums or Tylenol, which I was grateful for. And I'm hoping for the same for us as we sort of settle into this. I hope that we never need Tums or Tylenol after a sermon, by the way, but it's an imperfect analogy, but you know where I'm, where I'm headed here. Um, Pastor Joy introduced us last week to the eight visions of Zechariah. They happen in chapters one through six of the book. And then we move on to some, some images of the, of the future kingdom. And she explained how these eight visions form what's called a chiasm. That was the word of the week last week, chiasm, where the visions sort of pair off. So vision one goes with vision eight, and two goes with seven, and three goes with six, and four goes with five. And this is a literary technique that you see not just in Zechariah, but in many different places in scripture to reinforce important themes, but also to lead us to sort of the main point of the vision. And the main point of the visions leads us to visions four and five, which is coming in a couple weeks, and then it goes back out again. So Joy spoke on visions one and eight last week, horses and horsemen who patrol the land and are a forerunner of God's promised justice, a time when God is going to come and make all things right. And certainly we hear a call for justice in our world. We see that desire amongst people for, for God's justice for all of his creation. And for those Israelites in Zechariah's day, who had returned to a ruined city of Jerusalem after being in exile, these visions were an incredible source of hope. God's going to come. God's going to send a Messiah. And that Messiah is going to pick up the broken pieces. He's going to take that which was, was fundamentally broken and worn down and neglected and make it new and make it whole. That's a vitally important word for these exiles who had returned. A great place to start these visions and to end them. It's also a vitally important word in visions two through seven, which we're focusing on, two and seven, which we're focusing on today. These are also crucial words for the return exiles. The first pair of visions tells the exiles where they are headed. That was last week. And this pair that we're talking about this week 
tells us where they've been. Where have they been? So let's read this pair of visions, shall we? I'll invite you to stand as you're able. We'll start with vision two, which is from chapter one, verses 18 through 21. And I looked up and I saw four horns. I asked the angel who spoke with me, what are those? And he answered me, those are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And then the Lord showed me four blacksmiths. And I asked, what are they coming to do? And he answered, those are the horns that scattered Judah so that no head could be raised. But these blacksmiths have come to terrify them, to strike down the horns of the nations that lifted their horns against the land of Judah to scatter the people. And then vision seven. Remember, this is a pair. Two and seven are a pair. Vision seven from chapter five, verses five through 11. Hang with me here, okay? Then the angel who spoke with me came forward and said to me, look up and see what this is that is coming out. And I said, what is it? And he said, the ba- this is a basket that is coming out. And he said, this is their iniquity in the whole land. And then a leaden cover was lifted And there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. So he thrust her back into the basket and pressed the leaden weight down on its mouth. And then I looked up and saw two women coming forward. Wind was in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted the basket between the earth and the sky. And I said to the angel who spoke with me, where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set it down there on its base. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. So let's go through these one at a time. Um, If you hang with me here, I promise you'll be able to understand what's happening in these passages, in these visions. And then we're going to move to how they apply to us. And I think you'll be surprised in some of the ways that they apply to us here today. First, uh, the first vision, which is vision number two, the vision of the four horns. Um, Zechariah sees four horns that scatter the people of God and then four blacksmiths who come and they drive out the four horns. That's really what happens here. How can we actually visualize this? Well, I think it's best to think of the four horns as two beasts of some kind. Think of a steer like this, two beasts. With two horns, that makes four horns, right? And they each have two horns, and, they dr- and, and there's a plot of land that people are on, and these beasts uh, ravage the land. They drive these people off the land. It's not a safe place to be because they drive them off the land through their brute force. These two beasts are certainly Assyria and Babylon. Those are the two nations that drove the people of Israel out of their land and drove them into exile. Okay? The people of Zechariah's day would have picked up on that immediately. They would have known that these four horns were Assyria and Babylon because they had lived under the oppression of those exiles. They knew what this meant deep in their hearts. But then the vision doesn't stop there. Four blacksmiths come. The word here is is hotly debated. Uh, It should probably be translated as craftsmen rather than blacksmiths, but some sort of, of, of somebody who works with tools, right? And these four craftsmen come, and they scare off the two beasts, and they strike them down, and they serve them justice for the damage 
that they have done to the people of God. The craftsmen are the nation of Persia, who defeated the nations of Babylon and Assyria. There are four craftsmen to indicate that their power was equal to those four forms. So what's the overall message of vision number two? This is where you have been as a people. This is where you've been. You were driven off your land by Babylon and Assyria, but now that threat has gone away because Persia has come. They've driven them out. You've been liberated. You've been allowed to come back to your, to your land. This is where you once were, but you're not there now. Okay? Simple enough? Okay, vision number seven. And this one is a little stranger. Um, this vision is about a basket, specifically a measuring basket. It's known as an ephah. Um, uh, measuring baskets were really common in the temple because they measured out and weighed out grain offerings. Okay? And the measure of this basket is the iniquity of the whole land, of, of all the people in the land, the guilt of the people. And the angel then lifts the cover for Zechariah so that he can see what's inside to reveal the contents of this measuring basket, this ephah. And inside is a woman. The woman is seated inside the basket. And she's identified right away as wickedness. Not because women were wicked, of course, but because she's a symbol of an idol. So idols in, in the Babylonian Empire were often depicted as women in a seated position. Okay? And those idols would be taken of a woman in a seated position. They'd be placed on a pedestal in the temple, and people would come, and they would pray to and venerate that idol. So the woman personifies the wickedness of idol worship. So what does the angel do? The angel takes a leaden cover and shuts the, shuts the cover of this measuring basket to make sure that wickedness cannot escape from that basket. And then two women, who are very different than the woman who's seated in the, in the basket, with wings, they come and they grab the basket, and these women are distinguished from the woman in the basket. They are not seated, but instead they have wings like a stork, the, 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 the text tells us. Scholars call these fairy anthropic beings. They're like part human and part animal. You see them in the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, here in Zechariah. And they show up in scripture when there's some sort of divine purpose. When there's some sort of divine purpose. Something that mediates between heaven and earth, God and human. And these women are no different. What do they do? They grab the basket with the woman shut inside, wickedness shut inside. And they spread their wide wings and they take the basket away. And the angel explains that they are taking the basket to the land of Shinar, which will, which will be placed in a temple on a pedestal for permanent display. The land of Shinar is in the southern part of Mesopotamia. That's where Babylon is. So what's the overall message of this vision? The wickedness of Babylon needs to stay in Babylon, and it is not welcome in their new home in Jerusalem. The wickedness of idol worship that's a Babylonian thing. Idol worship may have been normative where you came from when you were exiles, but it is not normative here. It is not welcome here. And the new life that you are building here in Jerusalem, there's no room for that. So send that, seal that wickedness up and send it back to where it belongs. Leave it in Babylon. That's the message of Vision 7. So when we put these two visions together, the angel shows Zechariah these visions and tells them to tell these to the people. The bulls are being driven out by the craftsmen, and the woman of wickedness in the basket is being lifted back to Babylon. 
these visions are sort of like, if you think about it, the climb of a roller coaster, right? It's an invitation to look back, to look down, to see where you have been. He's saying, this is where you've been, Israel. You've been driven off the land. You've been displaced. You've been mired in wickedness and idol worship. And, and yet, those enemies have been, have, have been driven away now. And you have a new start. So let the wickedness of Babylon stay in Babylon, forge a new reality right where you are, and leave the past in the past. Leave the past in the past. And the Israelites desperately needed to hear this word. They've been in captivity in Babylon for over 50 years, which means that other than a handful of maybe their most elderly people in their community, no one had known anything other than being in exile had known nothing other than being a captive. These visions might seem sort of obvious to us after we sort of understand them, right? Yeah, well, it's obvious you're not in captivity anymore. You're in Jerusalem. You're not, you're not a captive anymore. Why would you need to tell them that? But there was some deep stuff going on with these Israelites. And it took them a while to hear and absorb it because their entire identity up until this point had been centered on the fact that they were captives. It's like the all-too-common story that you read about or you see in movies where someone is released from a long term in prison. And yet, when they get out into the real world, they have absolutely no idea how to live outside of those walls. So what do they do? They go and commit a blatant crime just so they can go back to what they know. The same is true for those who have been caught up in human and sex trafficking. People who desperately want to get out of that destructive, evil cycle. But once they do, oftentimes they're paralyzed. And emotionally, things begin to hit home. The reality of where they've been. And the vast majority of them return to what they were doing because that has been their identity. These Israelites needed to hear very clearly and vividly that Babylon and all the wickedness that was in it, that was your identity for a generation and a half. But it's not your identity anymore. That's not who you are anymore. That identity needs to stay back where it was, and it needs to not follow you to where God has placed you now. That old identity does not work here. So let me ask you today, where are the places that you've been that God has brought you out of? What has God brought you out of? What kind of wickedness and darkness and sadness have you previously known? What kinds of idols have you bowed down to and worshipped, trading in the worship of the one true God for a lie? What sins and patterns of behavior have held you captive and far from God? When you look back on the Babylon seasons of your life, what stories continue to replay in your mind? I think it's fair to ask, for some of you here today, have you allowed God to even bring you out of those places in your life? Are you still living in those places? And if you are, let me say to you what Zechariah says to these Israelites. The beasts that once held you captive have already been defeated. The exile of sin has ended because of the power of the Messiah. We know his name now as Jesus. Those people didn't know that name. We do. He rose up against those beasts. And he defeated them, and he made way for your return to God. 
that's been done for you already, and it's time for you to receive that gift as a grace, as a true and good thing, and to live into it. Your identity is no longer as an exile, as a captive, as one who is far from God. And for those of you who already know this in your heart and take joy in it, let me ask you, are there old ways that you have already been delivered from? Are those things truly in the past for you or do they remain with you? Do they cling to you? Do they vie for your emotional attention? Earlier this year, I read the memoir, The Boys, uh, by Ron and Clint Howard. If you're looking for an interesting memoir, it's a great one. It's the sprawling story of their lives uh, in Hollywood. And as most of you know, Ron Howard got his start at only six years old on the Andy Griffith Show, playing the role of Opie Taylor. Opie Taylor. Uh, in his book, Ron actually talks about that even today, he is known primarily as Opie. Despite his acting success on Happy Days and his incredible success and with, with two Academy Awards and four Emmys and a Grammy and Golden Globes and all of that stuff, he is one of the greatest success stories in the history of Hollywood, right? And yet he is still called Opie everywhere that he goes. He laments this a little bit in the book. I mean, he's really grateful for those years of his life. But there is a sense of, don't they know that Opie was like 60 years ago? Don't they know that all the other stories that I've told and accolades that I've had and roles that I've played and things that I've accomplished? Howard even says, quote, my initial reaction every time I hear someone call me Opie is a little tightening in my gut. I'm not going to slug anyone, but come on, I'm not Opie anymore, end quote. But it doesn't matter. He cannot shake that identity of Opie, right? And perhaps you feel that way sometimes. That there's an old identity, an old name, that you've worked hard to move past, and it continues to follow you everywhere you go. Ways of the old self, the exiled, captivated self, continue to creep up in your life. If that's you, and I think it's most of us, if not all of us, I have a few words of wisdom for you from these visions of Zechariah. Visions that certainly still speak to us today. First is this. God has defeated the wickedness of your past. Just as God raised up Persia to drive away the beasts of Babylon, so too God raised up his son Jesus to defeat oppression and captivity to sin and wickedness. And just as it would have been totally crazy for people who were free and living in, in, in Jerusalem to continue to believe that they were exiles, that they were captives, so it would be crazy for us to not accept the gift of grace and new identity that's given to us by Jesus. But we have a tough time shaking those old ways of being, old sins, old labels placed upon us. So hear this plainly. Jesus died and rose to life. So that you could be free. He drove away the beast with might and power for you and for me. We no longer belong in that place. That is no longer our home. Even if brokenness and sin and wickedness are all that we've known our entire lives. 
Those enemies have been squarely defeated. They've been driven away. And if we hold on to an exilic identity, uh, the identity of a captive, we are missing out on the mighty works of God in our lives. Second thing, when that old identity seeks to return, seal it up with a leaden cover and send it away. In the vision, the woman whose wickedness is in that basket, that's in the city of Jerusalem. And in the same way, our old self, our old identity, comes up frequently right where we are. It shows up in a place that it should not be, where it doesn't belong. When a pattern of the past does this to us, when it crops up like that for us, we are to do as the angel does. We take a heavy leaden cover and we seal it up and we ask for the messengers of God to send that away, to send it where it belongs. I think this is the thrust of Paul's magisterial message in in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says, Now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from life, from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They've lost all sensitivity and they've abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way that you learned Christ. For surely as you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus, to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirits of your mind, and to clothe yourselves with a new self, created according to the likeness of God and in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says, put away that old self. Put away those old ways, seal them up, send them away. Identify those old habits and those old identities and ask God to cast those as far away as possible from you. And I know from my experience, he will be faithful to help you with that. He will do it. He will do it. Third thing from this passage, your identity is now in God. Every minute that we spend pondering on living in and ruminating on our old self is time diverted away from God's desire for us here and now. Which is to live into a new identity. Not defined by our wickedness, our sins, our shortcomings, our failures, but by our desire to follow him. To be his son or his daughter, to live as the people of God. Paul again in Colossians chapter 3 So if you've been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are of earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your identity is hidden with Christ in God. You have a new future ahead of you. Not one defined by what has come before, but by what God is going to do next. The book of Zechariah constantly points to the coming reign of God when he will come as the Messiah Jesus and make things right and make things new. That's the identity that we are called to. That's our future. That's our destiny. If we're unable to leave the past in the past, then we're not able to seek the things that are above. 
So these visions communicate wisdom, and I echo to it. I, I, I echo that wisdom for you and for me. Don't be where you've been. <laughs> be where God has you. Set your eyes on him who has brought you out of that past and into his glorious present and into his future. As you ponder this word and hopefully let it challenge you today, I encourage you to consider, perhaps for the first time, to receive the promise of God and to leave your past life of sin and exile behind you. If you've already done that, as I know many of you here have, and you've received that gift of God, let me encourage you to consider what parts of your past have you brought with you. Maybe unbeknownst to you, what have you brought with you? What still lingers? What old clothes do you continue to put on? What old things are you unable to shake? Are you ready to seal those things up and to send them away? That's the call of these visions. And it's a gift for us to receive those words of wisdom today. I'd like to respond to these in prayer. This is something we're going to continue to do, at least through these visions that we have over the next couple weeks. I have a responsive prayer for you on the screen. And I want to have you respond in the bold print. We won't go too fast, because I know these words come a little fast. But these are truths that I want to speak over you and over me. To be reminded of where God has us and the call to leave the past in the past. Would you respond with me? In Christ, you are not forgotten. You are chosen. You are not an orphan. You are a child of God. You are his. You are not powerless. You are not defeated. You are not your past mistakes. You are not a victim. You walk side by side with the king. You are a trophy of his grace. You are his light, shining like a city on a hill, bringing him glory as we grow up to be like him. May we remember this. Amen. Amen. I love the defiance, in a sense, in those words. The ways in which we speak those truths over one another. Let's continue to do that as we sing our closing hymn. It's 625, a declaration of faith and how we shall live. I then shall live.